would you teach us how to make American pizza? And so she said, sure, that'd be great. And uh, so they came over and uh, my wife had this pizza stone and they were going to make pizza and she started explaining how you make the, you know, the dough and how do you, you know, how you do this and the different cheese and all that kind of stuff. And well, as my wife is talking, uh, you know, she's doing it all in Russian. So I was there to help her a little bit because, you know, some of that stuff's strange to talk about in a foreign language. And anyway, we, so we were talking through it and, and one of the girls that she was teaching it, well, girl, she's about 30. One of the ladies that she was teaching it to starts edging in and starts showing this other Russian girl how it's done. How to make this American pizza. Oh, you do this. And you, oh, you, you don't do it that way. The way Stephanie said, you do this. And you, you change this and you do this. And, and I was thinking, you know, I, I don't know anything at all about cooking. So, you know, I mean, I trust my wife, but maybe this lady knows what she's talking about too. And, and so I, you know, I thought maybe that was the case. And uh, she was going along describing this and that. And then finally she said, you know, that pizza sauce is really expensive. So if you want, you can just use ketchup. And uh, she lost me there. She lost me there. I was with her, you know, just because I don't know anything until she got to the ketchup instead of the pizza sauce. And I thought, you know, there's, a, there's something wrong there. She really acted like she knew what she was talking about and she wanted to take charge. And, and she was uh, the one doing all the talking and my wife sitting there watching, remembering that she was the one asked to teach them how to make American pizza. And so, uh, but this, this lady took over. So, you know, she had me until the ketchup and, uh, you know, she kind of fooled me a little bit, but... Um, you know, that, that's, that's a simple story, and it's just about pizza. It's not a big deal. But they, there are other areas of life where uh, people can come in and act very authoritative and, and speak as if they really know what they're talking about. And they can, they can uh, kind of take us for a ride sometimes, and, and we can kind of buy into it. A few years ago, my wife and I had this situation happen where a young couple approached us, and uh, they're about our age. They approached us, and they said, they were talking about their, their spiritual life, and, and they had gone through a, a really bad trial in their marriage just uh, six months before that or eight months before that, something like that, maybe a year before. And they were talking about how they had gotten through that trial and, and how God had really just done a work, and, and they were all healed now, and they had had this special experience, and, and they had started seeing this, this counselor who was showing them the way, and, and so they were, they were living this, this kind of new uh, Christian life, and they were, they were all excited about it, and and, uh, you know, this, this new special knowledge that they had and these special experiences that they had had. And, and um, you know, when, when someone talks like that, you know, from their own experience and they speak so authoritatively, sometimes it's, it's, it's possible for us to kind of listen to that and to think, well, you know, maybe, you know, there's nothing special about my Christian life. You know, I just, I, I know God and I read the Bible and I pray and, and I see him do stuff, but it's not boom, big, huge stuff like that. And I don't have this special secret knowledge or secret way. I'm just a run-of-the-mill Christian. Maybe, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe, maybe these people have something that we don't. And we can start to doubt our own faith or at least our own spirituality. And uh, those, those kind of people exist and those kind of events exist. Well, the Apostle John in the New Testament, he knew of this church. He loved this church and he knew him well. Basic solid church that had been planted by by the apostles was growing and uh, there were believers there and the kingdom of god was spreading from that church it was a good solid church but these people called the gnostics had come in and started teaching gnostics that's from the greek word to know so it has it has to do with this special kind of knowledge that they have and so these these gnostics would come in and they would say oh yeah you teach about about this jesus uh, who, who came and, you, and you, you say that he was a man. Well, actually, he wasn't 
a man. He just appeared to be a man. Oh, and, and by the way, all this, uh, all the, all the matter that's around you, all the physical stuff that's around you, it is all uh, evil. And so um, it's only the spirit that's good. So the spirit is good, and any matter, any flesh is evil. So um, this special knowledge that we have has to do with the spirit, and we have these special spiritual experiences, and all the flesh is, is bad and evil. So it really doesn't matter how you live, as long as you have this knowledge, as long as you have this experience, if you know this, this secret way, you can live however you want, you can treat people how you want, it doesn't matter because the flesh is evil anyway, right? And you're, you're just not going to tame it. So that was the message. These Gnostics came in and they were teaching. And so the people, just average Christians, first time they'd ever heard anything like this, and they thought, well, yeah, I'm, I'm just a regular old Christian. I didn't know anything about this secret knowledge. And, uh, you know, we've been told that Jesus came in the flesh, but you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, may, maybe they've got something. Maybe we should listen to these people. And so the church started really doubting what they had heard. They really started doubting themselves and, and thinking that maybe these, these Gnostics, these new teachers who were coming in, maybe they knew something that, uh, that, that we all should emulate. Maybe they should learn that same knowledge. So John gets word of this. John, the Apostle John. He gets word of it. He hears about this church. And he says, uh, I need to do something about this. So he writes in this letter. And that letter that we have is, is the first book of John, the first epistle of John. We call it First John. So open up to First John, please. Just a little bit before Revelation, you'll get to the John books. Revelation, and then backwards is Jude, and then backwards Third John, then Second John, and First John. We're going to do First John today. And we're going to do the whole thing. Okay, I want to summarize this entire letter that John wrote to these people. So we're going to be in 1 John. That's the letter that he writes. So the church has begun to doubt themselves. They've begun to doubt their own spirituality, their own spiritual walk, because these gurus have come in and started saying stuff they've never heard before. And they thought, well, you know, they sound pretty smart. They sound like they know what they're talking about. And so John writes, and he, he writes this book of 1 John. And I, I want to just say by, by way of introduction here that how, how do you know what someone really cares about? They talk about it all the time, right? It's what they talk about. And if we could keep a word count of, of different key words in people's conversation, you'd be able to figure out exactly what they care about. And, you know, all you wives know what your husband cares about, and all you husbands know what your wives care about, and your children, you, you just hear it. Well, let's, let's talk about what I want to go through just a few words that are mentioned again and again and again in the book of First John, just to give us an idea, a preview of what John is really concerned about. Okay, this is a, an apostle of Christ who's writing a New Testament letter, so you would expect that God appears pretty regularly in this book. 63 times God is mentioned. Love, he's the apostle of love, the beloved apostle, right? John is. Love is discussed 46 times. The word occurs 46 times. Sin, 26 times. And then we get into interesting stuff. Truth or true, 16 times. Children, mostly children of God or my my beloved children or little children, 15 times. Life, 15 times. Commandment, 14 times. Jesus, 12 times. And these two are interesting. Practice, 8 times. And then lie or liar is 8 times. So these are kind of the major themes that he's talking about. This is, this is, these are the themes that are important to him. So it's going to be interesting to see how these things play out. 
So he writes this letter and he, he writes it to the church. Now remember, he has confidence in this church. He knows this church. It's a good, solid church. There, there have just been some, some yahoos that have, that have snuck in and they're, and they're teaching stuff that's, that's bizarre. It's off the wall. Okay. So he, he's writing to the church and he's, he's going to give them three tests. And I, you have your test there in the outline. He's going to give them three tests to see whether they, the church, are in the faith or whether these teachers are the ones who are in the faith and how to distinguish between the two. So the first test there that's, that's discussed is the moral test. I call it the moral test. And the question is, do you obey God's commandments? Do you obey God's commandments? So let's open up and read just a, a few of these passages here. He talks, first of all, as, as, as people who walk in the light. Do you obey God's commandments like someone who walks in the light? Chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he says here, a true Christian will walk in the light as he is in the light. We talked in, in Sunday school this morning a little bit about some of the, the characteristics or the qualities of light. Light illuminates. It shows what's there. One person in class said, light makes, makes me feel safe. If you think about little kids being afraid of the dark, turn the light on and they're fine. They feel safe. Put a nightlight in, they feel safe because they can see. It illuminates dangers. It shows you when there's something you're going to stub your toe on or there's a bad guy in the dark or if there is or is not a monster under your bed about to come out for you. Light shows those things, right? Those are some of the characteristics of light. Light doesn't hide something. We look around, it's all visible. It's all plain for us to see. And so a true Christian is someone who walks in the light. They're not... They're not hiding things. They're not, they're not in the corner. Oh, yeah, this, this area of my life or, or this thing that I secretly believe or whatever. They walk in the light as we are in the light right now. Well, a true Christian is also someone who walks like Jesus walked. Chapter 2, starting at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Okay, here we go. By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Not easy, but straightforward. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So a true Christian will walk like Jesus walked. Now, while we're in the middle of this conversation about obeying the commandments of God, John is under no illusion that a true Christian obeys God all the time. He knows himself and he knows people. He understands that no, we're not perfect and no, we don't obey all the time. 
mean, he's going to get to another word in a little bit. Practice. Practice. But it's talking about our lifestyle in general, how it plays out in general. Is our life characterized by these things or characterized by sin, by walking in the darkness, by disobeying God? If that's a general characteristic of a person's life, then he's saying here they're failing this test. They're failing this first test. Look down in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So do you obey God's commandments as one who does the will of God? Generally speaking, in life, do you obey God? Do you follow Him? Or do you obey the world and follow after the world? And remember, this is a tough test. And I, I read through this many times this week, and a lot of times it came across as a, almost a rebuke to me. It came across as a, as a test that I thought, wow, this, you know, this is really tough. This is really hard. And it is really hard. Obeying God consistently, regularly. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing sometimes, right? And if we look at our own lives, and if we're honest, we, we realize and we'll confess, we'll admit that, you know, I don't always. I just don't always obey God. I don't always do His will. I don't always walk in the light as He is in the light. I don't always. But as a general characteristic of life, that's what He's talking about. Especially here, look in, in uh, chapter 3, in verse 4. Here's a large portion we're going to read. Chapter 3, starting in verse 4. This is where it becomes a little clearer. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I read that and I think that's tough. That is some tough stuff. But he's distinguishing practice. Is this your life? Do you spend your life in sin? then you're failing this test. Do you spend your life, with some exceptions because we're human, we're faulty, we're fallen, do you spend your life in obedience to Him? Do you practice righteousness? And remember, remember the whole context of this, of this entire letter. It's written to the church. And was John confident in the church? 
Yes, he was. He thought this is a good, solid church. Just these bad guys have snuck in and they're leading people astray. So he's expecting that the majority of the people in the congregation will read this letter and be encouraged. He's expecting that they're going to pass this test. Just average Christians. Average Christians. He's expecting they're going to pass this test. But the, one of the things about Gnosticism that would cause a Gnostic, one of these teachers, one of these new guys who came in, one of the things that would cause them to fail this test is they believed matter is evil. My body is going to do evil, period, no matter what I do, so just let it do what it wants. It doesn't matter how my body lives. It doesn't matter how I, how I live my life because only spirit is good. And anything matter, any flesh, is evil. So let it be evil. It's going to burn anyway. That's the way they treated it. And John said, no, that is not from God. That is not from God. And here's a test. You can distinguish between the two. Do you obey God or do you not obey God? These guys weren't obeying God. They couldn't care less about how they lived their life. The Christians in the church, they were because they had been taught to. So that's the first test. I call it the moral test. Do you obey God's commands? As one who walks in the light, as one who walks as he walked, as one who does the will of God, and as one who practices righteousness. So that's the first test. The second test, do you love God's people? Do you love God's people? Let's turn to chapter 2 and look at uh, verses 9 through 11. And if, if you added up all the verses I'm reading to you today, it's almost the whole book. It's not. It's probably about 55 or 60% of the entire book. Pretty short book. But this is really what's on his mind, okay? All right, so you've turned to chapter 2. We're looking at verse 9. We're going to read down through 11. And this is uh, loving God's people as one who is in the light. 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So someone who is in the light will love God's people. Not like these, these guys who were coming in and teaching. They were completely in darkness. They didn't know. They lived in sin. They continued in sin. And they couldn't care less about God's people. They had this secret knowledge, remember? This secret knowledge was the key. These other people who were with them didn't really matter. This secret knowledge and these experiences that they had, they were the real key. But John is saying, do you love people like someone who is in the light? And he says it differently in chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. As one who is alive in Christ, do you love people? Chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is it doesn't. 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So for people who are alive in Christ, who really have eternal life, they will love the brothers. They will love the people of God. That's a characteristic of them, right? A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. From the very beginning, that's been a key. So one who is alive in Christ will love God's people. Do you love God's people as one who is a recipient of God's love? C, one who is a recipient of God's love. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And look down at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see your brother, he's right there in front of you. If you can't even love him, how do you say you love God that you can't even see? So do you love the people of God as one who is a recipient of God's love? And then finally, as one who loves the Father, do you love God's people? And that's right there, the first half. I'll just read chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So as one who loves the Father, do you love God's people? So this is the second of his tests, the love test. Do you love God's people? And John fully expected that the church would pass this test. That when the people sitting in the pew or standing there, however they did it, heard this, he expected they would say, well, yeah, I love these people. And they would be encouraged by it because they're passing this test. But these guys who had snuck in and were teaching and were, you know, for, for secret gain or for whatever on the side, they didn't love God's people. Couldn't care less. There's a distinction between them. Well, as I thought about this and I thought about all three of these tests, the first two seem relatively normal. When you think about, you know, when you think about yourself, am I a Christian or am I not a Christian? Or sometimes when we think about someone else, and usually we shouldn't do this too much, but is that guy a Christian or not? I don't know. He, you know, he says he is, but does he act like it? Well, does he obey God's commandments? That kind of fits in our mind, right? Of course, someone, you know, we, we, we understand that. Does he, does he show love? Well, Je- you know, Jesus said that we're supposed to love each other. Well, those, those sorts of tests uh, of true faith kind of make sense to us, right? But it's this last one, the doctrinal test, that uh, people don't really like in their own life. I've met people, I've met missionaries who said, I just hate, just 
theology, just discussions of theology. Just hate that stuff. It just leads to bitterness and arguing and infighting and all this kind of stuff. Just, I just really don't like theology. Well, John says something a little bit different here. He says it's, it's one of the three tests for whether a person is or is not a Christian. The doctrinal test. And the question for this test is, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And all of us sitting here are thinking, well, yeah, sure, yeah, that's no problem. And probably a whole bunch of people out on the street would say the same thing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's the Son of God. That's, that's maybe one of the only three things they know about Jesus. He's the Son of God. Well, he's gonna, John's going to talk about it a little more fully what he means. First of all, he's going to say, okay, Jesus being the Son of God, that means something. First of all, that means that Christ is fully man. He's fully man. Open to chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first three verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Every spirit. That's not just an idea of a, you know, a, a demon or an angel or, or something like that. It, it, it means those things, but it also means every message, every messenger, Every message, don't just believe it because someone opened their Bible and started saying it, okay? Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Great. All right, I want to do that. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, John says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Okay, all right, colon. By this you know every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He came in the flesh. Spirit that confesses that is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, whom you heard was coming and now is in the world already. All right? So he's saying, here's this first test, the first part of this doctrinal test. Yeah, you say you agree, you know, pretty easily that Jesus is the Son of God. All right? Do you believe he came in the flesh? Why did he say that? Why is he asking this question? Again, it's because of the Gnostics. Go back to the Gnostics. The Gnostics firmly believe their basic tenet is that spirit is good and any matter is evil. This is evil. Anything here is evil. All right? So how can it possibly be that the spirit God can become man and take on flesh? Flesh is evil, right? According to their teaching, the flesh is evil. It can't be. It just cannot be. It is, it is impossible for that to happen. That's, that's what the Gnostics were teaching. So they said, well, you know, this Jesus, he just appeared to be a man. If you would have tried to touch him, you would have gone right through him like, like some special effect in a movie. He's not there, right? That's what they're teaching. He's not there. And so this is why John is saying, no, he came in the flesh. And if a spirit comes to you and says, hey, he didn't come in the flesh, that spirit is the spirit of the Antichrist. And remember, who's writing this? This isn't just some guy who studied at seminary somewhere. All right, remember how it starts. Turn back to... chapter 1 verse 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard he's not talking about generally all humans he's talking about the 12 okay which we have heard we've seen with our eyes and the Gnostics are saying okay well that's fine we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life and then down to verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we complain, proclaim to you also. All right? So he's saying, look, we spent three years with Jesus. We touched him. We arm wrestled him. 
All right? We know what he felt like. He was flesh. The same flesh as us, okay? So to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is not just some statement, but it means he came in the flesh, okay? He's the human Son of God. He came in the flesh. But it also means that Christ is fully God. 4, 13 through 15 say that. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The emphasis there is on the divine, that Jesus is one with God. He wasn't just a man who came up with some great teaching. He wasn't just a prophet sent by God. He came in the flesh, and he's divine at the same time. He is one with God the Father. So Christ is fully God. Further, to say Jesus is the Son of God is to say that Christ is the only source of eternal life. Chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Who is the liar? And again, remember, liar or lie occurs eight times in this book. He's making no bones about it. He's drawing a distinction. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And flip over to chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Christ is the only source of eternal life. So he's teaching some basic things here about Jesus. And he's saying, if these things are not true, then your faith is not true. If you don't believe these things, Jesus came as a man, flesh, just like us. Jesus is God, one with the Father, and that he's the only source of eternal life. He says, and I I wanted to add point D there, but I didn't think of it in time to give it to Rochelle. Point D, as uh, Christ any other way is an idol. Christ any other way than what he just delineated is an idol. He's not the true Christ. And I find that from the way John closes the book. Oh, turn to the back page of, of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Now, this seems strange at first, at first blush. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how he finishes the book. Not greetings or not some other instruction. Uh, and this is the only time idol has appeared in the whole book. Keep yourselves from idols. And what he means is this. You have received the true teaching about Christ, about who he is. To believe anything different than that about Jesus is to believe in an idol. And what does an idol get you? 
does not get you eternal life. Does not get you fellowship with the Father. All right? Doesn't get you salvation. It's an idol. So that's the doctrinal test that he gives. Do you believe in the Son of God? And not just generally, but in these specific points. Do you believe in the Son of God? And again, he fully expects that the church that he's writing to is going to read this and say, well, yeah, I do. And, well, these guys don't. He's trying to draw a distinction, okay? It's, try, it's, it's meant to be encouragement and to help them discern in some of the confusion that was going on in the teaching there. I like what he says in chapter 5 and verse 13. These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may have eternal life, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You can know it. So that's why he's writing to them, so that they can distinguish and they can look at these Gnostic teachers and say, you know, they've been confusing us and they've been causing doubt about my own spirituality because it's not flashy or it doesn't have this secret knowledge or this special stuff going on. They've been causing me to doubt because I'm not like them. And John's saying, don't doubt, be encouraged. I wrote to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So, the test is done. Those three tests. The moral test, do you obey God's commands? The love test, do you love God's people? And the doctrinal test, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the test. So, as you're thinking about yourself, and there's a temptation, I know, when we sit in church to think about the guy next to us and try to apply it to him because he really needs this. But as we think about ourselves, and we think about the test, and we give ourselves the test, do you pass or do you fail? If you have a passing grade, all three, you pass all three, and that's what it takes, all three. If you have a passing grade, then he says here, you can be confident that you have all of the blessings of eternal life. You can be confident that you have all of the blessings of eternal life. What are those blessings? Well, he talks about them in chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. He will answer your prayers. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. So he answers our prayers. If we know him, that's, that's one of the blessings of eternal life. God eternal answers our prayers. Second, verse 18. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He's reiterating that test. But he who was born of God protects him. Who's he who was born of God? Christ. He protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So Christ will protect you if you pass this test. This is one of the blessings of eternal life. He protects you from the attacks of the evil one. That's a great blessing. That's a great blessing. And then verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Remember, they came; these Gnostics came with special knowledge. He says, no. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So he will give you spiritual wisdom and understanding and knowledge, not some weird stuff like came from these Gnostics. 
All right, so that's if you get a passing grade. Now, what if there's a failing grade? What if you look at this and you come up short? Well, you need to know that Jesus Christ, God's divine son, came in the flesh. He came to this earth to meet God's righteous demands and to pay the penalty that we deserved for not meeting those demands. No one except Jesus has ever met those demands. And that penalty that he came to pay is death. He was crucified by an angry mob, bearing God's wrath for our sin. And when he was dead, they buried him in a tomb. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead, just like he said he would, to demonstrate that Jesus had conquered sin and had conquered death and that God accepted that payment. And finally, he was taken back up to heaven where he is our advocate before the Father even now. As John says, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So put your trust in him and in him alone for eternal life and then you will be saved from that day of judgment to come. Let's pray. Lord, your word is clear, and we thank you for that. We can know, we can look at ourselves and know, and we don't have to continue in uh, confusion or in misery because we don't know whether we know you or not. Lord, you give tests here. You give clear uh, ways that we can discern whether we know you, whether we don't know you. Lord, help us to uh, discern rightly. Help us to be encouraged if we should be encouraged by this. And for those who didn't pass these tests, maybe it's the first time they've ever heard. Maybe this is brand new to them. Lord, I pray that they would remember the words that were said, that they would take these notes and they would reread these passages, things like, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That they would think, that you would convict in their hearts, that they would come to know you. Lord, we pray for your blessing this coming week. Help us to live this out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.